Before we dive in, I want to let you know that my pediatric food allergy course, Fear to Freedom, is officially open for enrollment right now on emilynolan.com. One more thing before I jump in, I'm a mama, not a doctor. So the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a qualified medical professional. Any questions you may have concerning the diagnosis or treatment of a medical condition should be directed to your doctor or another qualified healthcare provider. I will say at the end of the day, again, there's no one right move for everyone. So we really have to balance the psychological and physical wellness. So you really have to choose what is right for each individual child. After reading Dr. Carrie Nadeau and Sloan Barnett's eye-opening book, The End of Food Allergy, I did some digging online and came across an article in New Scientist. Food allergies could soon become a thing of the past. Here's why. In the article, Dr. Nadeau talks about the six Ds, which we'll be discussing in this episode as a guide to preventative measures during childhood for children with food allergies. So what are these six Ds that could help our children with food allergies? We have Dr. Tina Sinder, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at Stanford, joining us to share. Dr. Sinder's focus at Stanford is on allergy and immunology. She's a member of the Maternal and Child Health and Research Institute. Dr. Sinder's board certified by the American Board of Pediatrics and the American Board of Allergy and Immunology. She did her fellowship at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and her pediatric residency at Children's Hospital at Montefiore. She graduated from her medical education at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. All right. I want to know, what can we be doing right now as parents and caregivers to help our children with food allergies? Let's jump right in and start learning. Welcome, Dr. Cinder. Thank you so much, Emily, for inviting me. The six Ds, it's a very kind of simplified way of presenting this, but but essentially the six Ds are diet, dirt, dogs, dry skin, detergents, and vitamin D. And how do they impact our food allergies? Yeah, so what we have found, and again, there's no um, one right answer for everyone, but what we have found that a diverse diet early in age can actually have a protective effect on developing food allergies down the line. Also, the whole eat dirt theory, the more exposed you are to your environment, almost going less hygienic, maybe protective. Dogs are great because they bring the environment to you and kind of lick you all over and introduce you to those allergens, even if you're trying to avoid them. And then dry skin, we worry, and this is something that a lot of researchers are looking into right now, is whether the dry skin may be the gateway where environmental allergens are entering and interacting with our immune system. So kind of preventing dry skin and creating the barrier that the skin is supposed to do and um, reestablishing that can help protect against food allergies. Detergents. It's been found that with the incidence of eczema and associated food allergy and asthma have all been rising over the past decades. And some studies have shown that increase in incidence may be tied to our 
use of detergents and how easily they're available. We use it in the washing machine all the time. And we suspect that the proteases that make the detergent so good at breaking down dirt in our clothes may also be breaking down some of that protective barrier in our skin and our mucosa. And so kind of I'm not saying don't wash your clothes, but just being mindful that the detergents that you use are less fragrant. And then vitamin D. I see it as exposure to sunshine because if you're outside, you get your 10 minutes of vitamin D, you're getting exposure to dirt, you're getting exposure to allergens, you might even get some exercise in there. So it could just being outside can actually knock off several of these D's on the list. For children who already have mild to severe allergies, food and environmental allergies, like my son, Ollie, where in the beginning, I'll give you two examples. We had a dog for the first year of Oliver's life, which has been mentioned in Dr. Kari Nadeau's book that, you know, having a dog for the first year of the life is really important in terms of bringing the environment in. However, he developed a dog allergy. So... The dog licks him and brings in tree pollen from the outside, the dog's dander. That's just one example. The other example is the tree pollen issue, which the dog also brings in. So we actually had to find a new home for our dog, who we loved so much and still love, still take care of, even though he's at the other home. And our son, like, it's really sad. He still talks about him coming back. But we just can't have him in our home right now because it makes Oliver's allergies so bad. So for children like that, and I have many parents that I've coached and spoken with who have children like that, who have relocated, who've gone to different cities just to get out of the environment that was so toxic to their children. What do you recommend in terms of dirt and getting outside and being in the environment and being exposed post-diagnosis or post-learning about, yeah, my kids got severe allergies, whether they're food or environmental? You bring up such an important point, Emily. You you know, even when we do everything right, so to speak, we can still develop food allergies and environmental allergies. And it shows that it's not that simple. There's a lot of factors involved, a lot of genetic factors, a lot of the way how our bodies function and in the individual level. And we're still discovering that and learning and trying to ask the right questions so we can find those answers. Uh, Dr. Kari Nado's team has also done twin studies where one twin has allergies and the other doesn't. So it shows shows that there are too many factors to count and we we may be doing everything right and still have allergies. What I would recommend, aside from the allergies themselves, I think being outside does give a lot of um, other protection, other items that are healthy and good for the body. So, and if relocating helps that, that's amazing. With the dog, once you've developed the allergy, it's really hard to turn back time and take away the allergies. So really, it's a matter of kind of managing symptoms and minimizing symptoms. One way to overcome pet allergy could be through allergy shots, where we introduce small, tiny, incremental amounts of the allergen into the body, so tiny that your body is not reacting actively, but enough to kind of get your body a little used to it over time. And then once you get up to a maintenance level, you may be better able to tolerate something that you were previously allergic to. But what we have found is that our allergic family members and patients and individuals have predisposed 
predispositioned toward this allergic skew. So the way their immune system is formed, their environment, their immune environment is just a little more pro-allergic. And so they will always tend to have that tendency. And what we can do is we can make sure that we're peak health in every other way so that that a small trigger may not induce, you know, a reaction or more symptoms and just kind of manage them well in every other way that we can, which would include having a good diet, being, um, you know, being outside, making sure vitamin D levels are up to date. If they have asthma and if that's triggered by environmental allergens, making sure that's under control, that can, that can help minimize the symptoms and help manage it, but cannot take it away completely. And the other thing I wanted to mention, and we have seen this with relocation, they may avoid the primary allergen at first, but the few years in the new environment, there are new allergens in the air. And so this individual's kind of pro-allergic state may just find something new to become allergic to. So it seems kind of contradictory or counterintuitive, but we want our kids to be outside. We want them to have the vitamin D. We want them to have the dirt. Okay, here's my case. I have my son enrolled in an outdoor school. So it's actually a farm school. So they have farm animals and they have, you know, the allergens that come with farms. But, you know, being on a farm is a good thing to inhale that dust that comes from being on a farm is good for, I believe, the microbiota. I know what you're talking about. And it's also through like um, leaves and such. It's like, um, it's more the microbium, like it's more back... Again, don't quote me on this because I have to look into it, but I think it has to do with kind of the bacteria that's around. It's more protective and it's on plants and leaves. And that's why you got to walk in the woods to like clear your head and give you ideas. Yes. And it lines your gut. That bacteria lines your gut. So you really want the bacteria to get into your gut. And so let's just say the idea was good. However, you know, this child, whether it's my child or another food allergy or environmental allergy child is not thriving in this outdoor environment. They would thrive more in a more sterile environment going into an indoor school with recess a couple times a day that are that's outside. So like, do you have any thoughts on this scenario? I know everything is case by case, but I would love to hear if you've had any experience like this with your patients. That is so interesting that you say this because I enrolled my son in a summer camp that was in a farm and he hated it. We call him our indoor kid. He loves the ideas about being outdoors, but he just hates being outdoors. Uh, My daughter, on the other hand, loves it. She was definitely that child that was out there trying to eat rocks when she was a baby uh, outside. But I will say at the end of the day, there again, there's no one right move for everyone. So we really have to balance the psychological and physical wellness. Um, the amount of tears and drama that went into sending my kids to the farm camp in long term, you know, may not be worth it in the end. So you really have to choose what is right for each individual child. Um, but my, you know, with my son, it's always something we say, I'm like, well, you got to be outside for at least 10 minutes. And he's like, okay, well, can I just go sit in the sun and read? And he'll put his timer on and he'll come back in. <laughs> but we, to offset that, we try to enroll him in sports that are outside and just kind of trying to align his interests while also getting you know, getting my interests across and really kind of having a more back and forth and a solution that works for everyone. 
maybe the right move. The other thing to think about also in certain areas, if there's concern for pollution or wildfires, we don't want our children outside. And so that's another example where the harms of being outside in that case are far outweigh the benefits. So again, it's a very case by case basis and kind of we just have to pick our battles sometimes and work through them. Speaking of wildfires, I was doing a little digging on natural fireplaces indoors and the repercussions or health implications that they may have. Do you have any research or knowledge on the effects of breathing in that smoke indoors? Yes, yes. I'm so glad you bring this up. Um, By natural fireplaces, do you mean wood burning fireplaces? Yes. Oh, Mm -hmm. yes. They release a slew of pollutants that are actually very, very, very harmful to our lungs. And they affect little kids more than adults, actually, just because of the surface area and the volume of kind of lung, small kind of alveoli they have. Um, They just breathe more than adults. So their lungs are getting exposed more to these pollutants than um, adults do. But we in several states, including California, wood-burning fireplaces are banned. Um, and also now there's a lot of concern with kind of stovetop cooking and fires, candles inside. Again, you know, temporary one-off cases may not do a lot of damage, but we have seen that long-term chronic exposure does increase inflammation in our lungs and long-term kind of lung damage. You know, we're more concerned about someone who has asthma, then this can also trigger their asthma. I love Seeds PDS08 Pediatric Daily Symbiotic, and you probably already know that if you're following me on social media. I mix it with my son's daily multivitamin every morning in a beautiful espresso cup when I can to show him that self-care is a beautiful daily ritual. Also, because it contains the dual-phase prebiotic made of short and long-chain carbohydrates, it does take an extra moment to dissolve. This easy-to-use and sustainably packaged symbiotic, meaning it's a two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic powder is formulated for benefits in and beyond the gut. It's the first children's symbiotic with nine probiotic strains clinically studied in a pediatric population for benefits across digestive, respiratory, and dermatological health. The pediatric daily symbiotic also supports easy, frequent poops, which happens to be my son's favorite topic. PDS08 even bridges the fiber gap with five grams of fiber per serving. It's a meaningful complement to a healthy diet. Also, it's reassuring to know that the product is free from sugar, artificial colors, flavors, flow agents, binders, preservatives, and if you're listening to this podcast, and likely most important to you, free of 14 classes of allergens. Seed is offering my listeners a 20% code towards your first month. Just head to seed.com backslash Emily Nolan and use the code EmilyN20 to get 20% off your first month today. Since we're talking about what we can control and environmental things, how much of what we can do can impact our child's health, like lifestyle, diet, and environmental choices? And what are the biggest drivers and most important choices we can make that will impact our child's health? That's a great question. I feel, and this is coming as from the place of an allergist, a pediatrician, and a parent, that the 
choices that stick are the ones that are easiest to pull off and you have everyone's buy-in. <laughs> so, you know, we can have grand plans, but if there's a lot of friction in the way, it's just going to be hard to pull off. So really take kind of like small wins to kind of go through the day and celebrate the small wins and it's okay. And little things you can do to kind of affect choices go a long way. And um, at least with my children, what I've noticed is one of the best way to influence their choices is to model that behavior. And so we as a family try our best to kind of model, you know, in terms of uh, diet and exercise and being outdoors, kind of what we expect out of them. I feel like we're always bombarded with all the things we're doing wrong all the time. Distilling it down to bite-sized pieces and seeing what is feasible for you. Because it may be the best thing for X, Y, Z, but if it's really hard for us to do, it may not be the right thing for us. So just kind of identifying that and taking it one day at a time. I just spoke with uh, one of my friends about this who's also a food allergy mom. And uh, her son has food allergies. And I was saying, you know, I'm so particular about Oliver's diet and I have this sense of stress, this chronic stress when I see my husband bring home sugary ice cream with, you know, just pure cane sugar or just candy on Halloween. And and you're just like, no, this is the worst holiday ever. But I will say that although I usually don't partake in those activities, On my own, I have started to introduce packaged foods to Oliver because, you know, as a mom who is, I don't want to say obsessed, but very interested in health and well-being and uh, eating real food, real whole foods, I also see that it's very important to normalize the packaged food. So I found a few brands that I love. I go to Thrive Marketplace and can find things with chia pouch with Jerusalem artichoke in it. And so, hey, they're getting some prebiotic fiber, but he's also getting his pouch, right? And chia. So there's some omegas. And and he's so excited, right? So I'm sticking with the positive nutrition and and just taking the power away from packaged foods and normalizing it. And so, you know, I've found that when I stick to whole real foods at meals and then allow the snacks or you know, treats, if you will, to be these packaged foods that he kind of has a little power over him right now, then it normalizes it. And it also allows him to continue the journey of seeing what his parents are modeling, eating real whole foods for meals to power him up and also talk about how it can create health. He's three and a half. So that language changes like every couple of years, as you know, as a parent. So yeah, I think that that was very practical advice that you gave. Okay, good. (laughs) After a recent interview with board-certified allergist Dr. Courtney Blair, I learned of Dr. Chow Cho's research on ATP and the link between IgE-mediated allergies and our microbiota, which is so fascinating to me. From what I understand, Dr. Chow Cho's research states that food allergies are established and are growing rapidly because of a generational loss, among other drivers. For example, how often my son's grandparents and parents have taken antibiotics and fever reducers and how clean our environment is can affect the flora and fauna of the next generation. As we know, gut health is directly linked to our immune health. So I want to know, can we reverse the generational loss and restore flora and fauna in the microbiome for our children now? 
I'm so excited that you mentioned uh, Dr. Chacho's research. She is a friend of mine and a co-principal investigator on a trial that we're conducting together. It's called the SEAL trial. And the purpose of this trial is to answer a lot of those burning food allergy prevention questions that are um, you know, being asked. How do we prevent? Who is at risk? How does our diet make a difference? And um, so part of this research study, we will be using questionnaires to kind of understand what the mother was eating, what her diet was during the pregnancy, what the family's diet is through the child's early childhood to understand what kind of allergens are in the environment, what the child's early foods are. And even though we are not directly um, impacting those choices, we're just collecting as much data as we can. And we are we will be testing for allergies down the line to better understand how diet and our environment can impact our um development of food allergies down the line. But you're absolutely right. Our research shows that a diverse diet that is rich in fiber and low in processed sugars is, it may be our best recourse to kind of build back that heterogeneous di- uh, microbial diversity that human beings have been used to in you know years in the past. And just kind of working on our diet and being mindful of it and thoughtful of it can help potentially restore some of it and prevent further loss. Dr. Cinder, you are a practicing doctor and a research doctor. And I am curious, what is your hope for food allergies in the future? What do you see for us in the horizon? I, I will tell you that with our kind of new studies, I am really hoping that we can find some real associations where we can identify tangible, specific items that may increase the risk and potentially decrease the risk. And if we can identify that, we can make recommendations that can truly prevent food allergy from developing in the first place. Because once allergy has developed, we're just chasing after it, trying to prevent and minimize symptoms. But if we can just stop food allergies, that would be to me, that is my hope and my dream. And I'm hoping that we will get there one day. And it just takes a, we will continue kind of working through all these research studies and gathering as much data as possible. And that's where, you know, a lot of our food allergy families and participants play such a big role in furthering our knowledge and helping us, you know, get their blood, spending their time coming into these clinics. And all none of this would be possible without their help and support and participation. I'm going to tack on one more question because I'm curious. If we can calm down our children's immune systems, get rid of the eczema or rashes they're having, the red eyes from the environment, or just the constant food allergy reactions that they're having by strict avoidance or by enrolling in an OIT therapy where it's controlled introductions, can we create a more stable environment for our children who have food allergies and Will that stable environment help them and protect them from larger reactions in the future, from having more reactions in the future? Um, Yes. So part of the goal of oral immunotherapy or some of these treatment strategies is to get a majority of our patients to a bite-proof state, whereby maintaining this kind of daily dose, they are protected from having anaphylactic reactions to an accidental exposure where they may have ingested a much larger dose. That being said, what we are learning is that, you know, even though majority of the 
individuals are helped. There is a subset of the population who are not helped by oral immunotherapy or their side effects to it kind of are much larger than the benefit they're getting from it. And that's also why a lot of these clinical trials are helpful because we are learning that no two food allergic individual is the same. Everyone's kind of presentation is different. Everyone's medical history is different. How they respond to the therapy is different. In addition to finding prevention strategies, we're also trying to find diagnostic strategies, ways to monitor response to therapy so we can identify how someone's response is going to be before they are suffering from the consequences. So we can tell an individual, well, you know, we can try OIT, but it may not be the right move for you because of XYZ labs. But with new studies, we're also getting more options. So there is sublingual options, there's patch therapy options, there's OIT with biologics on board that can dampen our immune response. And I feel like the more choices and options we have, we really can tailor the therapeutic strategy for each individual's specific presentation. And when it comes to what we're doing in our homes as parents, whether it's bringing fragrance-free products into our home or, you know, taking wood-burning fires out and candles out and bringing in real whole foods and high-fiber foods with less sugar, will that help our child as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if it may not have an immediate effect on the food allergy, it has long-term repercussions on their overall health. You know, when you're reducing candles and kind of removing wood-burning fireplaces, we are reducing long-term damage to the lung. It may not have immediate repercussions on their food allergy, but it does on their long-term health. By having more fibrous foods and minimizing processed sugars, we're restoring their microbiome. Even though it may not take away the food allergy, It is just helping them with a lifetime of just better health than we would if we didn't have that microbial diversity. Dr. Cinder, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation and learned so much from you. Well, thank you so much, Emily. And thank you for asking such thought-provoking and insightful questions. So um, appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. If you're not ready to get started with Fear to Freedom, my pediatric food allergy course, I do have a pediatric food allergy essentials resource with a ton, I mean a ton of incredible resources to get you started on your food allergy journey and healing your child with food allergies. You can download that right now on emilynolan.com and get started. If there's anything in this episode that resonated with you or led you to take action, I'd love for you to share it with me on social as well as any other friends and family that have children with food allergies or newborn children who may not have food allergies, but you know, may have the possibility to prevent it with this information. Remember to rate and review this podcast. It's a great way to give other parents of food allergy children some much needed hope and encouragement. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. I am so so grateful for all of your voices and support and love. And I'm just sending you all a great big hug. 